Why do we cry? How come love hurts? And what's a happiness researcher doing talking about sadness anyway? My name's Helen Russell. I'm an author, journalist and happiness researcher. And How to Be Sad is a podcast based on my book of the same name, exploring why we get sad, what to do when we're sad, and how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. In this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life, and each episode I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their own story. Welcome to How to Be Sad. My guest today is Mike Viking, the Danish happiness researcher and CEO of the Happiness Research Institute. He's the author of the bestseller Little Book of Hygge, as well as the Little Book of Luca, Happiness in Danish, and The Art of Making Memories. Mike is committed to researching into what makes us happier and how more of us can get happy. But in doing so, he's also become something of an expert in what doesn't make us happier. His latest report studied the impact of the coronavirus on well-being and, spoiler alert, it isn't great. He's experienced personal setbacks and losses too, as well as huge professional successes. And he says now, the aim isn't for people to expect to be extremely happy all the time. That's an unfortunate illusion to carry around. So I hope we can talk a little today about what we should be aiming for. Mike Viking, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Helen. Thanks for lovely words. I'm, I'm, I'm blushing. I'm, I'm glad it's, it's dimly lit here in Copenhagen. <laughs> it's dimly lit. It's Denmark in winter. Everywhere's dimly lit. So I'm really interested, you know, we've known each other for some years, but I'm always interested in that despite being a happiness researcher, you are refreshingly honest about there being a place for sadness too, and that it's a message that can tell us what's wrong and what to do about it. Can you talk a little more about this? And are people often surprised that you are you're okay about sadness as well as a happiness researcher. Yeah, I think they're surprised. And I mean, I, I honestly don't understand why, because of course I'm interested in the entire spectrum of happiness, but also the entire spectrum of emotions that we experience as humans. Um, I, I don't think it takes a long time when you're working with happiness to start looking and exploring other, other emotions as well, unhappiness, depression, loneliness, anger, uh, frustration. So, so to me, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in human beings. I'm interested in how do we create good conditions for good lives, but I'm also fully aware from the data and the evidence and the studies and, and personal experience that happiness is just one of the emotions that we, we experience as humans. And um, people are surprised. I, I, I don't think they should be. Yeah, understood. No, I agree completely. I think Sadness has been my focus for the last couple of years. And so I've been hugely kind of analytically interested in people's experiences of it and the research into it. And I was really struck by something you mentioned in the little book of Luca about commuting and showing that our happiness seems to decrease with every mile commute we travel. And that seems to me a perfect example of seeing sadness and then thinking, oh, that, that is trying to tell us something that has a purpose. D- did any of that research surprise you? Not that commuting makes us less happy. Uh, I mean, <laughs> and also that the different transportation forms we choose to commute also have an impact there. You know, being being a Dane and being in Denmark as, as, as you are, you know, we have a fondness of bikes and having having an active commute often also is is, is a better form of transportation if we're interested in, in, in happiness. But I think I think it's also understanding that happiness is you know, an umbrella term, you know, whether we talk about well-being, quality of life or happiness, 
there are different ingredients in that emotion. You know, you have one perception of what happiness is. I might have a, a, a different one. So usually we break it down and look at the different components that happiness or the good life consists of. Um, and that's why I'm, I'm really enjoying your book. I'm, I'm into, uh, into the second chapter now, but I really liked one of your points in the, in the first chapter was that you wrote that depression takes many forms. And, and I think you're spot on. And, and, and I think that's parallel to what I experience people perceive happiness to be. They want this one clear definition of happiness, but it's a super wide definition we need to work with. And I think we need to approach, as you say, depression the same way. Depression also takes many different forms. Sort of a clinical depression is also something you get from a composite index. So I think there's a lot of parallels there in terms of how we need to look at and talk about and understand both happiness and sadness and, and depression. And you've been doing more work in this area, haven't you, with your coronavirus report into well-being? I was so interested in this, and, and it's not a massive surprise, I guess, that we are not feeling great at the end of a, a year of global pandemic. You talk about loneliness and fear and economic worries. I was also fascinated by the fact that shame levels appear to have decreased a little bit during COVID. Is, is this right? Yeah. And, and if so, why? I'm, it's extraordinary. It, that is extraordinary. And, and I mean, you're right. It probably didn't take a team of happiness researchers and big data to predict that you know, people would be less happy during a pandemic. But we started conducting surveys in March or April, so during the first wave of the pandemic. I think we have more than 3,000 people in the study. And yes, people are less happy. And we see big drops in well-being. We're worried about health, you know, our loved ones, job security, and so on. So, of course, that is going to set in on our well-being. And I think we're going to see the impact of the pandemic also in next year's World Happiness Report. Uh, that's a rolling three-year average we, we see in the World Happiness Report. And we're going to see, I think, drops uh, across the line uh, next year on that one. The shame levels, I don't know. You're right. It's super interesting. Why are we less ashamed? Is it because perhaps there's less to live up to these days? I was wondering. Yeah, this comparison thing. Nobody else is having a good time either. <laughs> Exactly. Um, and, and, and the comparison thing, as, as, as you know, also as, a, as a, a fellow happiness researcher, is a big component in the sort of happiness algorithm, right? That, that we're social beings. We also look at what are other people doing? What are other people, you know, how are other people living their lives? And I think Corona, COVID-19 have, have somewhat sort of leveled the playing field. You know, we're all just at home <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and not going about doing really exciting stuff that might make other people feel less proud of, of what they're doing. Although I, I think there's, there's some really interesting research about the impact on women and the impact on people who have children. And many women have, have ended up taking more of a lead on childcare of their parents. And I, I'd be really interested to see what the, what the happiness studies show the impact of that has been. I have been incredibly, I mean, I see people kind of learning things or taking on new skills or new crafts during, during the pandemic. And that, that is a source of envy, certainly. You know, people just picking up another language. In fact, you're learning Chinese, aren't you? You're one of the people doing productive things. I, I gave that up a year ago. Did you? Okay, fine. I feel better. This is good. I'm, you I'm, see, I'm, I'm happier. I'm, I'm... <laughs> but I think it's, it's also interesting. I saw a study recently about 
the the share of the homework in in the UK and the US. There was a study conducted by Whirlpool, and they found that the workload still skewed, but have reached a more equal level now during the pandemic. Okay. Um, so men have taken on bigger uh, responsibility in, in in homes. That could also help, I, I would think, in in terms of of well being and and sort of shame. So you you talked about the research that you've done into comparison inequality and your TED talk, which if anyone who hasn't seen, I would strongly recommend the dark side of Hugo. Dark side of, of happiness. Of happiness. Oh, on school. <laughs> uh, you know, about, um, well, you explain, you explain, you know, how, it, how you came to, to give that talk and, and the impact it can have when we compare ourselves. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of elements in that talk, but it's, it, I wanted to nuance the point always being made that Denmark is called the happiest country in the world. That point is, of course, based on data and reports like the World Happiness Report. And I just wanted to stress it's important to remember that rankings are often based on a national average. And with an average, you have people above that average and you have people below that average. I like to call Denmark one of the least unhappy countries in the world rather than the happiest country in the world because I think the the Danish model or the Nordic model is is relatively good at reducing causes for unhappiness. Access to healthcare, access to university education, unemployment benefits and all that. But I also wanted to, in in the TED Talk, cover the, the paradox there is that in Denmark with a population of around 5.8 million, we have 500 people committing suicide every year. So we have people at the very lowest level of uh, the happiness scale. And in some countries and in some studies, we do see what is called the suicide happiness paradox. So we see it within the 50 US states. Um, So if you look at life satisfaction levels within the, the US states, the states with a higher life satisfaction level also have a slightly higher suicide rate. And, and the theory behind that paradox is that perhaps it's more difficult to be unhappy in an otherwise happy society because we compare ourselves to each other. So if I'm feeling unhappy and surrounded by oh-so-happy people that feel that life is great, then perhaps my own, own unhappiness seems stronger. And, and that was the paradox I, I wanted to touch, uh, talk about in, in the tech talk and perhaps also why uh, the constant social comparison that a lot of us tend to make is, is something we should be mindful of how it can actually uh, impact our well-being. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've read a lot um, about inequality and you know, driving sadness and driving um, stress and anxiety. And I've been thinking about money worries a lot, especially during this year as a source of feeling anxious or unhappy. And I'm always struck by, you know, we know that money doesn't buy us happiness over a certain threshold. And if we are maybe better off than our neighbours, perhaps we are feeling slightly happier. But I'm always interested, having lived in Denmark for eight years now, you make the case that Danes are happy, not in spite of the fact that they give almost half of their income away, but because of it, because they are getting this this Danish way that feels like a good deal. I kind of, you know how, the average average income is around 39,000 euros, is that right? Around, so 35,000 pounds, that would be in, in British money. And then you're paying maybe 45% income tax. Money must be tight for many. I have three kids, clothing and feeding and sheltering on around, you know, 20,000 UK pounds a year is, you know, is a challenge. That's less than the average in the UK. How does that work out then? 
Tell me all your secrets. <laughs> I don't think I have any secrets, but, but, but I do think the welfare model reduces some of the worries that people have. Of course, it's never fun getting diagnosed with a disease, but in some countries, you get an additional worry of the financial implications that might have. I think that's one of the worries that is being removed through the Nordic welfare system. I think there is no parents in the Nordic countries lying awake at night worrying whether they can afford to send their kids to college or university. I think the causes for concern are being reduced through the taxation system. Perhaps we're also a little bit less exposed to extreme wealth than people are in the UK and certainly yeah. in, in the US. And Yes, of course, there's rich and yes, of course, there's poor people in, in Denmark. But I think the extremes to either side are less than what we see in a lot of other countries. And if we come back to the social comparison, then maybe that's less of a concern, the sort of financial hierarchy where we are. But yes, money does matter. Yes, money also matters in, in, in Denmark. We can also see in Denmark, richer people are on average more satisfied with life but mainly because being without money is a cause of stress and worry and concern. Uh, of course, if you don't have money to put food on the table or, or clothes on your kids, of course, uh, that is not a, a happy condition to be in. But I think one of the things to do, whether we are rich or poor, is to be mindful of which activities, which things do we find joy in that are free. Mm -hmm. um, so, so trying to see areas or activities where we decouple wealth and well-being. Uh, we, we might have talked about this before, but I think one of the things I enjoy most in the summertime is going down to the central harbor in Copenhagen for a swim. So as you know, the, the water in the harbor is so clean, you can swim in it. And of course, you know, summers in Denmark last for about four hours and then it's back to winter you again. Get but quick. Those, those four hours are pretty amazing, right? Yeah. And, and I can do this whether I'm rich or poor. So trying mm -hmm. to identify something I can enjoy doing whether I'm rich or poor. Four weeks ago, I think it was, um, my girlfriend and three of my friends and I, we went to a forest north of Copenhagen. Uh, so it's, it's still Corona uh, time. So of course, we, we had to social uh, distance ourselves, but you can do that in a forest. Mm -hmm. And um, we went looking for mushrooms. And it was a, a beautiful uh, late autumn Saturday. We had picnic uh, open air. That was fun. That was free. It was, mm -hmm. it, was, it was meaningful. So I think identifying things like that we can enjoy, whether we're rich or poor, is, is useful. Um, because I think it removes the power that money sometimes have over us when we think of what makes us happy. Yeah, that's really, yeah, that's a lovely idea. I wonder though whether in Denmark, you know, there's almost this taking for granted that you'll have these, these close friends and you'll have this time to go and do, have this lovely picnic and this lovely walk. The Danish work-life balance seems to make a lot of these things possible, whether it's keeping up these close connections or it's having this time in nature. You know, during a global pandemic, what, what would you give advice to people? What would you suggest if, if people are feeling lonely or if, if um, you know, if circumstances are stopping us being able to access these things that we know make us happier, that we know will, will sort of help with our sadness? Uh, these are special times. In a regular year, my, my best sort of universal tip for, for well-being is, is the ABC for mental health, which is sometimes mentioned in Denmark, which ABC stands for ACT belong, commit. So doing something active, 
doing something meaningful, doing something together with other people. I mean, going mushroom hunting in the forest with your friends could tick all those three boxes. Um, of course, this is a, a special year, right? So connecting with other people is perhaps should be less of a, of a, a thing uh, for obvious reasons. This year, during the pandemic, I've found myself reading more than I usually do. Um, we can't travel, we can't visit new places, but we can still travel through books uh, now from the comfort of our own couches. And also, if you are in a sad period in your life, I think actually there's a lot of comfort in reading about people in the same conditions. You're going to love that chapter in the book. <laughs> okay. I agree totally. I write about that, yeah. <laughs> I look forward to that. And, and I also met uh, a couple of years ago a British writer who wrote Poetry Pharmacy. So he had collected a uh, list of or a range of poems, some of them, you know, 500 years old, written by a Persian man who had broken his heart. And, and his point was that a lot of people actually found comfort in experiencing or knowing that this emotion I'm feeling right now, I'm not alone with that. It's a common human emotion. 500 years ago, there was a Persian guy experiencing exactly the same thing. And that can perhaps remove a little bit of the, the stint from, from, from that emotion. So I, I yeah, look forward really to that chapter. Yeah. yeah, well, thank you. And so it's act, belong, commit. And the commit is something meaningful. Yes. Yes. Now, you, in, the, in the Art of Making Memories, you talk about the importance of doing things that are going to stand out because especially this year, I think a lot of people are feeling as though, you know, the past year, maybe the past 18 months by the time this goes out, have sort of gone by in a bit of a flash as well as each day feeling like it takes a long time because there haven't been these special markers in that way. How can we make memories when we perhaps can't do some of the normal things that we might do? I think ah, that's a good question. But, but, I, but I do think that this year, definitely not a happy year, but it's going to be a memorable year. Right. That's true. 20, That's true. Years, 20 years from now, we're going to remember 2020. 2019, perhaps not so much. 2020 is going to stick. So, so, of course, getting new experiences this year can be challenging if we think of new experiences as you know, visiting a new country. But, you know, we can still get new experiencing experiences from a taste sensation or new songs or new ways of connecting with other people. Yeah, I think there's still room for making new experiences. But I think perhaps this year is also a good year to try and retrieve those happy experiences we've had in the past uh, and try and get some additional joy out of, of what we experienced in the past. So maybe looking at old photos where we were able to travel, sort of retell some of those classic family anecdotes, that's, that's always good for, for bonding. Uh, so maybe that's the time to do that uh, this year. Yeah, I like I like that. I I'm a little bit obsessed with the Portuguese concept of saudade, this idea of, of reminiscing and the nostalgia of, of memories. And this feels like a good time to be doing that this winter, especially. In in making memories, you talk about the importance of retelling memories as a way to to kind of keep them alive, and especially to children, retelling them when they're older. I wonder what about sad memories? How what did your research tell you there? I haven't looked into so much about retelling sad memories uh, or sort of re-experiencing sad memories, but my instinct would be that the way we look at sad events also changes over time. 
the point around retelling is just to make sure that what we want to remember gets stored in our long-term memory. So if you've had a, a happy memory you want your kids to remember, say you took them to the forest and you looked for mushrooms, you know, you talk about it the next day. And then maybe a week later, you talk about it again, you ask them to you know, draw a picture of the time you went mushroom hunting. Um, then the following months, you know, you bring up that picture and you say, oh, remember that time we were mushroom hunting? And then a year from now, you say, oh, remember a year ago, we visited that forest and so on. So spaced repetition in the beginning, you have smaller spaces between the repetition, but then over time you can, you can go longer. But I think that's, that's one trick. Another trick is just to pointing it out when you are actually experiencing something that you would like to remember. Because the very foundation of memory is attention. And I think there's a great example of that. Who, uh, it, was, it was a Polish reader who told me that she had read The Art of Making Memories and she was reminded of a time when she was seven or eight and she was having dinner with her mom and her sister. They were having a really good time and they were laughing and they were feeling happy. And then at one point, her mother turns to her and her sister and she says, I hope you remember this. And here we are, 30 years later, she still remembers that moment because her mother made her pay attention to it. So I think it's a, it's a super simple, super cheap trick that, of course, yeah. can also be overused because if you every time you sit down with your three kids, say, I hope you remember this moment, <laughs> like, they Mom. might tell you to, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> but used every once in a while, I think it's a, it's a really powerful, useful tool. And so what, can you give me an example of one that you've done to yourself or that you have kind of made your, I think you're very good at, at sort of being present and making the most out of opportunities. Can you give an example of a time that you have made yourself a great new memory recently? I think it was, well, what first comes to mind was a few years ago when I was writing uh, The Art of Making Memories, where I was on Bonholm, which you're probably familiar with. It's a small rock island in the Baltic Sea where I spent my summers. And I was just having a really lovely day and I had been out uh, spearfishing and I was still summer in, in, in Denmark. So I got out of the cold water and I was sitting on a, on a, on a warm rock looking out over the ocean and just felt really at peace and, 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 and really happy. And I also know that we can use all the five different senses we have to sort of paint our memories with. So our memory works through association. So if you hear a song you heard in high school, then you're transported back in time. If you smell something, if you hear a certain word, if you taste something, that can trigger your memory. So I was sitting on this warm rock looking over the ocean and felt happy. And I, I, I thought I need to connect this with something. And there was a, a pile of dried seaweed next to me. So I took a good whiff of that. So now it means when I, when I see dried seaweed or when I smell dried seaweed, um, that, that's a memory trigger for me for that moment. That's interesting. And I've been thinking quite a lot about, um, it sounds very, I mean, Viking by name, Viking by nature, but the idea of spearfishing and then just being in the cold sea and then sitting on a rock, it's quite elemental. And there's, um, I've been thinking a lot about the Danish landscape and how that plays into well-being in Denmark and how different landscapes play into well-being. I've been doing some work on Norway and of course these big dramatic fjords and, and the mountains, it's, it's rather more dramatic than in largely flat Denmark. And I wonder what place awe, A-W-E, you know, there's lots of research saying that experiencing a sense of awe is very good for our well-being. It feels as though that's something 
over the global pandemic that people have not been able to access so much either in the physical landscape or in terms of you know normally at this time of year when I lived in the UK I would go to a cathedral and hear choral music and I am not religious but there is something sort of soul surging about hearing that or you would you know go to a play and weep there's you know being moved by either spectacle from nature or mankind feels hugely important and certainly this year it feels like it's been lacking for all of us but I wonder if uh you know when you talked about Denmark being an un people are not unhappy and that the average is that people are feeling okay is there a lack of awe in Denmark do you think there I mean there is that's a good question my 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 returning question would be how would we measure awe we need a scale Mike we're gonna draw up some surveys so, so I mean, so is is there a global goosebump index? Um, I love it. <laughs> the GGI, yeah. Okay, so the GGI, but, yeah. But I think I, 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 it's it's a super interesting question. I guess we could perhaps use not globally, but I know in the UK there is this uh, study under the London School of Economics uh, called Mappiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, you know, they asked, uh, I think it's 65,000 people to download an app. And then one, two or three times a day, people are asked, how happy do you feel right now? And the phone, of course, uh, and the, the app and the study collects the GPS data. So that means if we ask a lot of people every day and several times a day, how happy they feel right now, they can start to see, okay, every time you know, Mike usually reports, let's say, five on a scale from zero to 10. Suddenly on this Saturday afternoon when he was in the forest, he reported a nine. And a lot of other people also report nine. In really, the good mushrooms, they must, right? then they're really good mushrooms, right? They're really good mushrooms. I get it. <laughs> Just joking. So maybe we could actually use that study to identify an atlas of awe uh, in the UK. Yeah, that would be fascinating. Yeah, if people are experiencing some culture or yeah up a mountain that would be so interesting i mean you've written the uh, the atlas of happiness maybe it's time to write atlas the, uh, the atlas of all okay great all right 2021 project sorted yeah nice <laughs> yeah it's interesting you and i share share publishers and we sometimes go to different countries end up places and i'm always impressed when you've written in your books about things that you've done with your publishers including like going to a sauna with a finnish one i'm pretty sure you did something fabulous in Japan, when all that was on my rider was a tour of the Hello Kitty shop. I feel like um, you have overcome <laughs> the Danish aversion to spontaneity and you're very good at making these memories and taking opportunities and, and seeking out experiences there. Is that something you are conscious of? Is that, is that something learnt or is that something you have always done? I think that is something that I have become better at as I've aged. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when I was a kid and my family would go to Spain for vacation or something. My, my dad and my brother, they would have, it's called octopus. They would have calamari, right? Mm-hmm. Exotic, exotic food. My mom and I, we would always go with the spaghetti bolognese. Uh, so so I, I, I played it very safe when I was a, when I was a kid. So, so I, I think I've become more adventurous as I've grown old, older and seeking out those unique experiences you get from traveling. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I'm st- I, I'm not still scared of stuff. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the example with the Finnish with my Finnish editor you you mentioned. Not only did we uh, go to a, a sauna, uh, I also went 
what's it called in, in Denmark? We would say in Danish, we would say winter bathing, swimming in the ice cold sea. Right. So it yeah. was it was a January and and. <laughs> Um, after the sauna or in between the, the sauna visits, I uh, I went into the um, the ice uh, water of the harbor in Helsinki. But to be honest, I mean, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm still I'm, I'm I'm still that kid I was, you know, eating spaghetti bolognese in in Spain because earlier that afternoon I had googled whether you could die from ice uh, swimming. <laughs> so. Imagine if that was what was found on your laptop when you were on. That was the last thing he googled. <laughs> I, I'm interested. I know that you've written um, and spoken about, you know, sadness almost as a motivator. One of the reasons that you have kind of tried to embrace life more, and one of the reasons that Happiness Institute was set up. I know it was your your good friend and mentor died suddenly at the age of forty nine. Was it? Right. Yeah. yeah. So, and and I know that your mum passed away quite young as well. Can you tell me a little bit about how, what impact you think that has had on you? I guess personally and professionally. Yeah, I think. <sighs> They both died when they were 49. I mean, my, my, my mom died just after I finished high school, so I, I was quite uh, young. So you were around 18-ish? Uh, well, I, I was a bit slow, so I finished high school <laughs> later. <laughs> okay. That's still when you need your mom. Yeah. Right. And my, my colleague and mentor, who I really looked up to and, and thought, I want to be him in 15 years. He was 15 years older than me, and he was a great colleague, great boss, looked like a uh, uh, he was a great husband and, and dad to his wife and kids. I thought, I want to be him. And I was, I was working with him at the uh, company I was working with before. I created the Happiness Research Institute. And unfortunately, he became very ill and, and, and died quite suddenly. I think that was, that was a, perhaps not a wake-up call, but a reminder of my mother's story. And that I might not live till... 80 or 90 or 70 or 60 or even 50. And at the time I had been at the, the company I was working for for about seven years and just feeling sort of not very passionate about my work anymore. And then during that time also came the idea of creating the Happiness Research Institute because I, I saw how much was happening globally with happiness research and new measures of, of measuring progress. And the idea came to me to create a think tank on happiness. Uh, but this was 2000. The idea came in 2012, so just uh, in the wake of the financial crisis. And I also thought probably a risky time to start a new think tank and perhaps especially a think tank on happiness. But I just really wanted to work with this field. And I, I just felt there was a lot of energy in that for me and, and could be really fun and really rewarding and, and something I would really enjoy. So basically it came down to sort of thinking at the time I was, I must've been 34. So I had 15 years until I would be 49. So I was thinking, what do you want to spend the next 15, could be the last 15 years you have on. I mean, you can continue with this job and it's fine and it's, it's well paid and it's, 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 it's stable, but you're not just sort of really enjoying it anymore. You could also create this thing that you don't know how will go, but, where you would really enjoy working with it. And after that thought, I think it, it took a couple of weeks uh, and then I quit um, and, uh, and started out without, <laughs> without uh, much planning. Um, Were you scared? I was. So, so I remember this was the sort of week after I 
I had ended my, my, my former job. I was building the, the horrible website that was the first website of, of the Happiness Research Institute sitting in the, um, the, the Black Diamond, the Royal Library in Copenhagen, was before we even had an office. And just thinking, what the hell did you just do? And is this the wisest decision uh, or the dumbest decision you ever made? And I mean, I started out with what I thought was a good idea and a bad laptop, but it, it, was, it was definitely scary at first. And now that's, it's actually eight years ago, I guess I was sitting at the Black Diamond uh, thinking this, but that went on to become uh, the best decision that I'm definitely going to make in, in my career. Maybe ice swimming is second, uh, but, but it's... <laughs> but, I wonder, I, I, um, my therapist likes to point out that I probably studied happiness for so long because I was, you know, because sad things happened. And so that was my run too. I wonder, losing your mum fairly young, has, has happiness, was it even more attractive a proposition, I wonder? Oh, I, I don't think beyond pushing me to pursue a passion professionally like the happiness research was I, I don't think that event was what drove me to focusing on happiness I, I think it's definitely had a lot of impact personally but professionally I, I, I don't think it was that, that that pushed me to become interested in, in, in happiness research I think I've always been interested in people and I've always had a interest in a lot of different things. I, I struggled to pick what I wanted to study. So, you know, political science, history, uh, sociology, um, anthropology. Yeah, reading The Art of Making Memories is a little like, uh, I felt a little like you were Forrest Gump, just trying out many different jobs before you found <laughs> yeah. But I think that that's one of the great things about happiness research to me, that, that it's, it's something that, you can look at from an, a, a lot of different perspectives. So, so it was the area where I could combine all the different interests I had uh, academically. Uh, so, so I think it was more that, you know, you can look at, you know, how do we create good conditions for good lives? How does policies impact well-being? How do the way we design our cities impact well-being? What's the development of the way we perceived uh, happiness over history? So I think, you know, happiness is, is something I can use to, work with the different academic disciplines that I enjoy. And if you say that the Happiness Research Institute was maybe the best decision you ever made, maybe then it's the Finnish uh, ice bath after that, surely the little book of Hugo comes a close third. I mean, what a massive success to the seven people who have not read it yet. Um, you know, you can't have expected when you first wrote that, that it would be so huge. No, and, and I think, I mean, when you write a book, of course, you, you, you hope that it goes well, but you also know that often your family and friends might buy it and then a few other people. And, and, and I had personal experience in, 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 in that sense because before I wrote Hugo, I had written uh, another book. In Danish, it's called Lücken on a Loop, which means uh, happiness under the microscope, which is a more, it, it was basically a, a academic sort of, uh, approach to writing about happiness research, you know, giving people an introduction to happiness research, written on, in a very sort of dry uh, fashion without any sense of humor. Or, Leave your jokes. Or You're great. very good at the jokes. <laughs> I like your jokes in your books. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. Uh, but but it, it was it was sort of a, a more sort of academic book. 
and it was published in Danish. And my, the, we, we published, uh, my publisher published 2,000 books. And I think it was a couple of years ago, they, they, they wrote me that it had sold 500 and what to do with the 1,500 books uh, we, uh, we oh had left. Uh, long, long story short, uh, at one point I had 1,500 of these yellow books lying at home in my living room. Um, I, I refer to it as my yellow mountain of shame. So, so I'm, I mean, <laughs> I wrote a book that, that, uh, that have sold, I don't know, more than a million or more than two million copies, but I've also written a book that sold 500 copies. I, I wonder if it's helpful to come that way around then. You're very modest and humble about it, but I think I've been reading and researching a lot about arrival fallacy and this idea that when we get the thing we really want, does it actually make us feel happier? How, how did it feel when, you know, when you reach one million and then two million on the little book of Hugo, were you always aware, okay, I've still got my yellow pile of shame or could you actually enjoy it? <laughs> I could enjoy it. But I was also aware that I, I had the, the, the yellow mountain of shame. But I'm, I'm also conscious of what we see in happiness research that there is, you know, is sometimes referred to as the hedonic treadmill. We you know, raise the bar for what we feel we need in order to be happy. And we sometimes are fortunate enough to achieve our goals. But then soon after we set a new goal, right? So there's, there's no one accomplishment in life that is going to make us permanently happy. Uh, so, so fully aware of that. I think it's actually good to be aware of that, knowing that there is no one goal I can achieve that's going to make me you know, happy ever after. There's no such thing. Uh, I, now I know I disagree with another uh, Danish writer, Hans Christian Andersen, but <laughs> I think... <laughs> yeah, but there's some weird well, stuff going on there. I mean, Yeah. <laughs> But, um, but I, I think that's useful to be mindful of. I know it's a cliche of enjoying the journey, not the destination, but, but I think there is evidence uh, in, in happiness research uh, to, to, to say that's actually true. Okay. I'd love to talk as well a little about imposter syndrome. You're working in a field, as I am, where, where many people have academic or medical backgrounds. And in the little book of Luca, I laughed out loud when you talk overly modestly about one time feeling like the dumbest guy at the table, which is certainly not true, though, by the way. But how do you overcome imposter syndrome that many of us experience on a daily basis? I think it's something I've become better at as I've grown older. Just knowing there's some things I'm good at. There's a lot of things I'm really bad at. And that's fine. And I think when I was younger, I wanted to be good at everything. But I mean, <laughs> especially in primary school, I mean, my teachers were very sort of open about I had no talent in sports. I had no oh. talent in music. And when you are, I don't know, 12, all you want to be is a, like a rock star or a, a, a soccer player. Or even now, age 40, doors, I'd take that. Right? <laughs> now, those doors were, were shut quite early for me. So, so I, I had to pursue other things. Um, but but I think, you know, I, I think it's just embracing the fact that, you know, we can't be good at, at everything. I think the, the imposter syndrome, there was one time, four years ago, perhaps, we were perhaps a hundred happiness researchers gathered in Dubai. So usually once a year, there is a, a sort of global happiness summit in, in, in Dubai. They have a a minister of state for happiness and well-being, and she she sort of creates the, the basically the Super Bowl of happiness. And I was asked to do a presentation in front of these hundred happiness researchers. The hundred happiness re researchers I usually reference when I do presentations to people in a regular audience. 
So, of course, I was really hit with that because how could I say anything that these guys and, and, and girls did not already know, right? What I tried to do with that presentation was talk more about how we can become better as happiness researchers communicating the findings because they're far better intellectuals than I am. They're far better researchers. But perhaps what I have been uh, more fortunate at is, is communicate some of these findings. So, so I try to, to not talk so much about the research part, but the communication part. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's also sometimes what we do with the Happiness Research Institute. We are the bridge between the academic community and the public. There's a lot of great findings in happiness research that deserves a wider audience that the seven people re- reading that PhD will be. So it, it's, it's trying to see, uh, not trying to sort of compete with other people, but just trying to see what do I then have that these don't. I, I think that helps me uh, sort of overcome the imposter syndrome. Yeah, that's a great idea, a way of looking at it, of, of what, what you are bringing to the table and, and we all have something. And I think also trying, trying to, to see yourself as how can I be useful to them? What, what, can, mm. I, what can I help them with? I think it was Einstein at one point who said, you know, try not to think of yourself as how you can be a, a man or woman of success, but how you can be a, a man or woman of, of value. Uh, and I think that's, that's a much better starting point. What, what can I do that creates something of value for, for other people? I really like that. Yeah, so it's sort of an act of service. It's thinking, what can I do for someone else? Right. Yeah, that's a really lovely way of looking at it. And with all that you know, and from all of your research and experience, I'm fascinated. What do you do? What does Mike Viking do now when you're having a really bad day? What do you do to make yourself be good, sad, or feel a little better? Beyond the mushroom hunting? Beyond mushrooms. I mean, some <laughs> days you can't get your mushrooms. What are you going to do? Um, I, I, I think I do several things. And we all have bad days. I mean, happiness researchers are, are, are people too. Some days are good, some days are bad. Uh, some years are good, some years are bad. I will think, okay, six months from now, is this going to matter? Mm-hmm. And sometimes the answer is no, and that makes it easier. I, this year, I've also, or perhaps not even this year, but more recently, I've also perhaps become better at sort of distinguishing between what I can and cannot control. Mm-hmm. Right, so I cannot control what is happening globally right now, but I can control that tomorrow for brunch we're going to have banana pancakes. Nice. And you know, happiness comes in many different forms. Sometimes it's in the shape of pancakes, mm-hmm. uh, and and I can still sort of try and focus on what can I control, how can I create moments of enjoyment, of connection, of pleasure in the form of of good food and and, and so on. So, so I think it's becoming better at distinguishing between what I can and cannot control. And in terms of purely the simple things, as you mentioned, we've talked before about the importance of being active. I'd like you to share with everyone your, your coffee getting technique where you order it. And then how many flights of stairs do you have to do before, before you're allowed to drink it? That was, that was, that was, <laughs> that was when we had the, uh, the old office. And of course, nowadays I'm, I'm working from home. But back then, when I ordered a, a cup of coffee, the, uh, the sort of canteen where we had the Happiness Research Institute at the time, when they were making it, I would go up, I think it was four flights of, of stairs and then back down. And that just was a way to build in a little bit of exercise in, in my daily routine. 
I'm happy to, to share embarrassing stuff. Uh, so what I'm, what I'm doing now. Is, oh yeah, go on, new hacks, this is great. <laughs> right, so because now I'm, I'm, I'm working from home, so, so now I, I try to build in some, some physical exercise to things that I, I do on a, on, on a daily basis. So when I get coffee, yes, I can do something. And now when I, I have to go uh, to the, the, the toilet, I, I start with 20 push-ups. Do you? Gosh, you must really plan because when I need to go, I need to go quite quickly. You're really <laughs> scheduling. Okay, we're all sharing. Hang on, so when you get coffee now, what exercise are we fitting in whilst you're waiting for? What's it called uh, when, you, when you sort of, I tilt myself, uh, my back towards the kitchen table and then is, I think it's called Oh tricep. yeah, um, tricep dips, yeah. Yeah. Okay. For an audio medium, we're getting quite the demo. This is good. I like it. Okay. (laughs) Tricep dips. How many tricep dips do you have to do to earn a coffee? Well, what I do each Sunday is I see how many push-ups and how many tricep dips can I do total. And then I take half of that in the following week. So last Sunday I could take 40 push-ups. That means this week I have to take 20 and so on. Hang on, you're going. You're doing fewer rather than trying to do more each time. Yes, but but every week my my max will increase, and okay. that means if I take half of that, um, then it, it's 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 still also increasing. But it's also it's also I mean if you have to do your max, then it's too much of an effort. Yeah, I'm confused. Right? Yeah, okay. Right, but if if you if you take half your max, it's actually fine. Okay. Right. Okay. I thought you said maths there. Sorry, max. If you have to do your max, sorry, that's too much. Yeah, for sorry. See, see, this, this, this is your, this morning, I, Phil and Holly. <laughs> not only were I bad at, at sports and, and music, but also, you know, I spent third grade learning to pronounce or trying to learn to pronounce TH, which is a sound we don't have in the Danish language. No, it's, my Danish is terrible. But now I've mentioned it. Can you please share your, um, your this morning with Holly and Phil story quickly? Do you remember what you said to them? Mm, yes. yes. So, right. So this was, this was, I think, 2017. And the little book of Luca had just come out. And I was, as you, you also do when, when your new books are out, you know, you do interviews in a lot of different places. And, and I was visiting, it's called This Morning Show, right? Yes, This Morning yeah. with Holly and yeah. Phil. This, this, okay. And um, you have those sort of five, seven minutes to talk about your book and, and, and it's, it's, it's going well. And then uh, at the end of the interview, Phil says, so earlier you've written the little book of Hugo. Now you've written the little book of Lücke. What are you going to write about next? And I thought his Danish is great. And, uh, you know, he's pronouncing so, uh, you know, very good, the, the Danish words, Hugo and Lücke. And... I was aware that a lot of the Danish TV dramas have been shown in the UK in the yeah, original language, right? So you've seen The Bridge and you've mm-hmm. seen uh, The Killing or mm-hmm. The Bruce, as we call it. And, and also, uh, as you pronounce it, Hawken, mm-hmm. right? We pronounce it differently, as you know. And, and I, so, so here we are live to, I don't know, a couple of million uh, viewers. Uh, and Phil says, Hugo and Lydia. And I said, hey, well done on pronouncing Danish. You must have been watching a lot of Danish porn which is how we pronounce it. But of course, Phil and the rest of the crew heard you must have been watching a lot of Danish porn. So, 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 so everyone's blushing laugh, right now. Right, right. And, 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 and everybody was laughing. I had no idea why they were laughing. And, and that was sort of the end of the interview. So, um, so yeah, that went, um, 
different direction than I thought. The beauty of mispronunciation. Well, I have made plenty of mistakes in Danish, so it was only fair that you come and make some in the UK. Um, and finally, I, I normally end by asking everyone, I could talk to you for hours, but we must end. And I normally ask by, by saying, what would you tell your 21-year-old self now about specifically being sad, which I know is not your main focus, but about being sad and how to cope with what life throws at us? Because when we're 21, we don't know anything. Knowing what you know now. I, I still know very little. Um, <laughs> so I would say to him, what you're doing right now is a really good idea. It's a bad book you're writing right now, but it's a very good idea. So, so when I was 21, I was in Spain. So my, my mother had died the year before. And I went to Spain for three months to write a book about that experience, about having a mother who was dying of cancer and, and sort of that story. And I was in, in, a, in a small mountain town called Baesa, which is just 100 kilometers north, north of uh, Granada in, in, in um, and, Andalusia. And um, I was writing every day and sort of putting on paper the, the whole experience I had had with that sort of um, disease and, and, and death. And it was a bad, bad book. I mean, I tried to get it published. Fortunately, it wasn't. But I think it had not very much literary uh, value, but a lot of therapeutic value. I think yeah. writing through that experience was uh, very, very good for me in sort of dealing with what had happened. I would tell my 20-year-old self to continue writing. Keep doing Don't that. try to publish it, but it's a good idea. Was it fiction or non-fiction? It was non-fiction. It was non-fiction. Do you still yeah. have it? I have it. I wrote it in hand. Actually. Oh, wow. I still have that copy, yeah. I think that, that must be something even more powerful doing it by hand because each word you are laboring over, I'm sure many therapists would say that was a really helpful thing yeah. to be doing. So stick with the idea, but just keep it for yourself. That's what we're telling 21-year-old Mike. Okay. Well, Mike Viking, it's such a pleasure to speak to you as always. And thank you so much. Thank you, Helen. Always a pleasure to speak to you too. Thank you so much for joining me today. Please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How to Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care.